This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Megan Cameron. When our world is racked with division and violence, where can we find alternatives to bring less conflict? That's what we want to explore on this episode today. Later in the program, Megan will talk with Stephanie Lepp. She's the producer of the Reckonings podcast. We featured her before on an episode of Peace Talks Radio that focused on a survivor of campus sexual assault and the man who attacked her. Together, they worked through their trauma using restorative justice principles. Later in her podcast series, Stephanie found a real-life story of two people who are working together to find healing and solutions to clergy sexual abuse. More on that later. But first, Megan Camerick talks with two guests, Glenn Aparicio Perry, who's an educator, eco-psychologist, and political philosopher. He's the founder and past president of the Seed Institute. He's written the book called Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again, which explores how the best aspects of the United States, ideas like liberty, equality, and justice, were in large part inspired by Native American cultures. Megan Camerick talks with Perry and Oren Lyons, who is faith keeper of the Turtle Clan, Onondaga Council of Chiefs, with the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy. He's been active in international indigenous rights and sovereignty issues for over four decades at the United Nations and other international forums. Here's Megan Camerick with Glenn Aparicio Perry and Oren Lyons. Glenn, you open your book talking about this conversation you had on a train in 2016 There was a Bernie Sanders supporter, a Trump supporter, and a Native American man from Oklahoma. That does sound like the opening of a joke, Um, but (laughs) somehow you you all had a polite conversation, even despite these huge political differences. How do you see us replicating what you experienced there through the theme of your book, Original Politics? I mean, the closest thing you can do to it is to set up a formal dialogue and make sure that people understand that they need to listen for the purpose of understanding rather than just to ready their reply. And we did it at the Seed Institute, bringing together indigenous elders and Western scientists, so it can be done. Oren, I know when you have people in traditional council or dialogues, there's a stick the speaker holds. So that's the person who's speaking and he's not interrupted or she's not interrupted. Native protocol has always been uh, respect, and uh, in our our system, when a person stands and speaks, everyone is silent. Nobody interrupts. Nobody uh, counter anything until the person is through. And it's a protocol that early settlers learned from us. Their style of discussion gets pretty raucous. You know, they yell at each other, and you can't hear. There's a part in my book where I actually title it a subheading called From Raucous to Caucus. And the very word caucus is an Algonquin word. The settlers learned a lot of protocols from Native Americans. At a, a famous gathering in Independence Hall that happened, I think, in 1774, 21 Iroquois braves came and they initiated rules changes so that you're not supposed to interrupt a speaker on the congressional floor. You know, back then it was the Continental Congress, you know, and you also weren't supposed to take notes or you weren't supposed to read something else while they were presenting. And that's kind of the equivalent of somebody fiddling with their cell phone today. And that's why 
we have such a difference between the way American protocol is in the Congress and in our mother country in England, where in the British Commons, they jump and scream and dance and insult each other. You're not supposed to do that. You know, I found out that most of American ideals, the values that we cherish so much were really founded on Native American values, liberty, justice, equality, and natural rights, what, you know, what Thomas Paine called natural rights and often was also called inalienable rights. You know, these ideas came from Native America and the founding fathers took some of those ideas, but obviously, they left out a lot. You know, they left out women and they left out people of color and they did not get that from native thought because in Haudenosaunee society, as Oren can tell you, the, the native women had a very integral role in the political process, you know, nominating the male chief and having the right to remove him if he committed acts of malfeasance, inserting themselves in the process, calling a grand council. All of these things were observed by Ben Franklin and other founding fathers. And the first true founding document of the United States, the Articles of Confederation, was really closely aligned on the Haudenosaunee uh, Great Law of Peace. And the Constitution also was aligned along that way. But, you know, I think the effect of Native America, this is really important, is still here, but also that shadow is still here. So that's both a danger and an opportunity. You know, I told a story in Original Politics, and it's a White Mountain Apache story, and it goes like this. An old woman is weaving a beautiful rug, and as she nears completion of the rug, but when she gets up to stir the soup, her black dog, who's been sleeping in the corner, awakens and pulls on a thread with its mouth and unravels the whole rug. And then the woman returns. She's unfazed. She looks at the rug. There was beauty and harmony before. Now there's chaos and disorder. But she doesn't get mad at the dog. She just picks up a thread, stares into the rug, and reimagines an even more beautiful way to, to reweave the rug in harmony. That to me is kind of where we are today. <laughs> we have an opportunity to see America as it really is, and hopefully we can, we can make some substantive changes, and hopefully we can look at our history in a truthful way. This is what you don't know and what you're not told in your own history. It's like a bad debt, you know? Uh, you borrow $10 and you don't pay it back, and you don't pay it back, and finally you shun the person that lent you the money in the first place, and the next thing you do, you, you just make it a bad debt, and you just make that person a bad person rather than paying the debt back. It's the same thing. This nation here owes a great deal to the to Confederation mm -hmm. because our system was old before it got here and it's based on three principles. First principle would be peace, the second principle would, would be um, equity or fairness. And the third principle would be for as long as the sun shines, the water flows up, and the grass grows green. Now, how long is that? That's right up to today. If we knew more of this history... Why don't you know that? That's the question you should ask. Okay. We don't know this. Why do, okay, so I'll put oh, that yeah. in. I why could don't, answer that. Yeah. Why don't we know that, and what would be different if we learned this? 
everything would be different. And we did know it at first. You know, when the Continental Congress first was formed, they did give the credit to Chief Canas Astego. They did say his words were wise to unite as a confederacy. So there was acknowledgement. And for the first 50 years of this nation, all the world understood that the United States was a hybrid of European values and Native American values. And that's why the world was so fascinated with the United States in those early years. And everything that Oren has been speaking about, it is embedded in the, in the founding of this nation. A lot of it becomes forgotten in the 19th century. And Andrew Jackson starts the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and he rounds up, you know, he gets the Creek and then the Seminole, which were in Florida, but it wasn't even Florida then, it was, it was Spain's, you know, and then, and he starts an illegal war there, he's never prosecuted for it. Then he gets the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and last the Cherokee in the, in the horrible Trail of Tears and marches them 1,200 miles out to Oklahoma. At that time, that's when genocide kicked into full gear. That's when the true history of this nation started to be submerged in the shadows. That's when people forgot about their true roots. Participatory democracy was not invented by European men in powdered wigs. When the Continental Congress said to us that they were going to follow our example, they said, you advise us to make a union like yours. We are now going to take your advice and we're going to make a union like yours, that was in 1775. And of course, the response from one of our chiefs was, uh, or as the women, all of those leaders, their, their names became an office. And when they died, the women owned that title. And it was a woman's responsibility to choose the leaders. And she holds that title, the clan mother. And she can remove you or malfeasance, and she makes the choice, but it has to be ratified by consensus, not by vote. And so when you, your, your system went to a vote, our leader said to you, you know, you guys are gonna have trouble because you're just going by a little more than half agree. And if you have almost half that don't agree, you're gonna have trouble for you are right now. And they told that to them, mm. this, this eventually you're, you're a flop. And of course, where's the women? How can you have a, have a union without 50% of your population, especially your mother? <laughs> what? So how in the world are you going to have equity? And how are you going to have liberty? And how are you going to have democracy if you're holding 50% of the population down? Mm-hmm. You know how hard they had to fight to get the vote? came out of central New York, and that central New York vote was influenced by our women talking to your women. That's that's where that fight came from, right here. Mm-hmm. Because our, our women said, What's, you guys got to speak up. We can't return to a pre-contact world, obviously. How do we incorporate these ideas into our society now that seems much bigger and more complicated? That's true that we can't return to that way, but we can return some of the fundamental tools 
we can put them into place. And one of them is dialogue, you know, listening for the purpose of understanding. So I'll give you an example. It still can work. You know, um, Susan Collins in 2018, when there, when there was a government shutdown around Christmas, she actually used the talking staff in her offices. One congressman, even though they were told not to interrupt each other, one did interrupt the other and then the first one was angry. So he threw the talking staff at the one that interrupted him. And it broke a glass elephant on Susan Collins' shelves. But Susan Collins had a good sense of humor. She switched to a rubber ball. And that dialogue actually did break the impasse. And we got through that and we came to an understanding. That way we can find some commonality. The principle of peace is not pre-contact. That's today, right now. Equity, that's not pre-contact. So all the things you're talking about, you're talking about a system, basically our system, when you say pre-contact, you're thinking about us. No, we're talking about the principles that our system is based on. Peace, equity. Those are constants. Nothing mm. old about them at all. And if you don't have those, they're going to suffer the consequence. When uh, the leadership of the Haudenosaunee, you're instructed to, to now look after all life. You've accepted the responsibility to protect all life. And all life is not human beings. It's animals, it's the trees. So the leadership of uh, Haudenosaunee is based on the protection of all life. And it supersedes your, your responsibility to your, even your own family or even your generation. Seven generations give you responsibility to the future. If you provide for that seven generation, you yourself will have peace. You know, and that's what I see as something we need to learn from Native America, that our politics has to really think of the natural world. Because look what has happened when we haven't thought that way. Everybody is interrelated, and if we don't realize that, we're going to kill ourselves off. You both referred to the great law of peace. Foundational. And, and peace is dynamic. Peace requires a lot of effort. Uh, the dark forces are heavy. You know, if you stand still, they're going to roll on you. It's spiritual force. That's, talking with huge spirituality now. It's in every person. You have both sides in yourself. You have to understand that, too. You can be the worst enemy of today. Every day you have that option. That's where you you're fall short. You fall short in educating your children. You don't do the spiritual side of things. Glenn, you talk about mm -hmm. that in your book. How much of this is this idea of the great law of peace actually in our founding documents, our constitution, and what did we just conveniently leave out, like leaving women out? The true founding document of the United States is the Articles of Confederation. That should give you a clue in the name, Confederation. You know, it was modeled after the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So the Haudenosaunee had to come, when they first came together to make their confederacy, they were warring amongst each other. I hesitate to say this with you here, Oren, because it's your story, but you know, I mean, I'll, you come back to it, please. But their story has, you know, about peacemaker that brings together the tribes into peace, you know, is how the great law of peace got 
set up. They partially uproot a tree, they bury their weapons beneath the tree, and then they replant the tree, and that is the great tree of peace, you know, and the roots underneath there are the white roots of peace that, that spread in the four directions. And, you know, if you think about it, a tree is a beautiful metaphor for everything, really. You know, I mean, you know, our thoughts, you know, I, I like to think of our thoughts as root thoughts. You know, the kind of thoughts we have is what creates our institutions, which is kind of in the trunk of the tree. And what we tend to see and focus on too much is just the symptoms, the leaves. So all of that is there it's and we borrowed so much from the Haudenosaunee we borrowed the the concept of, of the great law of peace when the articles of confederation were written we set up a grand council that grand council was the kind of thing that women participated in they could could call at any time a grand council i think you would agree with me oren i would say the women were the wisdom council that you know set the vision for the tribe and the men were the one that enacted the, the vision. And I think that's a great way to, to bring together feminine and masculine energy. Well, the women are in charge of water. The earth is female. And so the water is mostly at earth and mostly water. The men are in charge of fire. And that's life and that's what they have to do. But as you know, water will diminish fire. Everything is in twos. Night and day, men and women. Mm -hmm. Everything is a, is a balance, and nature is the boss. Nature is, is ultimately the authority. And if you don't understand that, you're going to suffer the consequence. You can't defeat nature. You cannot. You will not. When you think of this, this battle that they have produced against nature, you're taking on an opponent who is your mother. How can you be fighting against your mother? You just don't have the comprehension, but that's that's the male dominance that you're dealing with right across the world. Men are a half circle, women are a half circle, and you put them together and you get your full circle of life. You can't have one without the other. You can't have peace without that equity. I think it's very important what Oren's pointing at, and, and Western women have been struggling for equality for a a long time and, and Haudenosaunee women helped them see that they they were fully deserving of equality because they were fed this idea that they this is the best it could be. They realized that wasn't true. They asked for full equality. I mean, the idea of only getting the vote was something of fallback position only. And Oren, you have talked about uh, the Bill of Rights maybe should have been called the Bill of Responsibilities. Indeed. I mean, you know, in the leadership, uh, I'm just going by our, our process, is that to be free requires constant work because of the intelligence that the human being has that can overtake other parts of nature. Human beings have a responsibility. It's a very broad one. The natural world doesn't have the intellect that the human being has. We have options every day, like I said, you can do this or you can do that. When a beaver wakes up, he does beaver work every day, all day. That's all he does. He doesn't have an option. A human being, you can do whatever you, whatever you decide. There's no end to what 
you can do. So if you can do and understand that, uh, how that needs to be have guidelines to maintain an integrity and a safekeeping, when you unleash that and it has no guidelines, then you're in deep trouble. If we're so smart, why are we, are, are we looking at an existential destruction of all life? You didn't follow the principle. The principles are difficult. They're simple. They're not complicated to them at all. It's just difficult because you have to do what is always right. That's Orrin Lyons, faith keeper of the Turtle Clan, Onondaga Council of Chiefs with the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy. We've also been hearing from Glenn Aparicio Perry, author of the book Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. Megan Camrick will continue her conversation with both when we come back after a short break on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Megan Camrick. And we're exploring the original ideas from Native Americans that inspired the creation of the United States. Megan continues her conversation now with author Glenn Aparicio Perry, who talks about his book, Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again, and Orrin Lyons, faith keeper of the Turtle Clan, Onondaga Council of Chiefs. You know, thinking, Glenn, about the good of the community, the commons, there's a tug and pull between this and individuality. So how do you persuade people who may fear losing individual freedom if they think more about the common good? For some reason in America, we've become this hyper-individualistic culture. And we and I'm not exactly sure how we got there, because sometimes we took people who I wouldn't consider hyper-individualistic people, like Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson, and we've decided that they're, you know, transcendentalist, which is a very strange word to describe them, because it means they're kind of separate and transcendent from nature, when especially Thoreau and also Emerson were, you know, understood how much they were interrelated with nature. You know, we've taken things like Darwinism, and Darwin was very much in love with the critters and understood that critters had feelings and emotions and wasn't really saying humans are superior, but we kind of created social Darwinism out of that, you know, survival of the fittest, which wasn't even in Darwin's book. It doesn't show up till the fifth edition. You know, I mean, it was Herbert Spencer's phrase. We've twisted it around in this way to encourage competition. Ultimately, that does not work. You know, I mean, you need some, there is some hierarchy in nature. There is some competition. 
but it's got to be in balance. There's, there's much more uh, cooperation in nature. You know, one thing I quoted in my book was from Marcellus Bearhart and uh, the Muscogee elder. And he said, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the resolution of conflict with love. You know, so it's not that we can avoid conflict, but, but we do need to include people. We need, to, we need to include them in a dialogue, in a discussion, in a group. And when we do that, when we have proper representation, when we balance women's input with men's input, the more we have a representative government that, that reflects the people, the better chance we'll have to resolve conflict with love. It's not going to come easy, but we need to bring people to the table. We need to listen. It, it may take a very long time. I don't want to be Pollyannish or, or just say, but I think it's possible. We can do it, but, but we, we have to listen. Well, there are two principles that existed and continue to exist. Um, I was followed by all indigenous people that I know. Um, and the first principle was respect. Respect. You show respect for yourself. You show respect for life. You show respect for everything. Respect, number one. The second principle was to share. Share whatever you had. Share whatever you could do. Share your work. Share your life and share. And those principles really are what leadership has squashed out. You're taught not to share. You're taught to accrue things to yourself. Even today in Indian nations in Onondaga, there was a knock on my door and I opened the door and there was a, a young man. I didn't know who he was. He's from the nation. I didn't, didn't know and he was standing there and he was holding half a, of a hind leg of a deer that he had hunted down. And he says, here. And I knew, because that's what I did when I was young. I went and I shared whatever I, I find to who needed it. And I was so pleased and so happy to see him carrying that principle. Somebody taught him. And so if you can instill those principles back into this country, which is just based on accruing everything. So share and respect. That's Orrin Lyons, faith keeper of the Turtle Clan, Onondaga Council of Chiefs with the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy. We've also been hearing from Glenn Aparicio Perry, author of the book, Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. You can find out more information about them at peacetalksradio.com. We can also hear Megan's complete interviews on the September 2020 episode. We move on to part two of our program. Megan Camerick talks with Stephanie Lepp. She's the producer of the Reckonings podcast. You might recall that we featured Stephanie before in our program about an episode she did for Reckonings that focused on a survivor of campus sexual assault and the man who attacked her, and how together they worked through their trauma using restorative justice principles. As we mentioned earlier, Stephanie followed that with an episode where she featured an imaginary apology by Pope Francis for clergy sexual abuse. But in seeking feedback on that script, she actually found a real-life story of two people who were working together to find healing and solutions to clergy sexual abuse. 
She talked with Susan Pavlak, a survivor, and Gil Gustafson, a former priest and perpetrator, who together created a group called Uncommon Conversations to help parishes address and stop clergy sexual abuse. We're going to play some clips from that episode today, but you can find the full Reckonings episode about it at our website. We have a link at peacetalksradio.com. And we do offer this content warning. This material does talk about non-consensual sexual activity. Susan Pavlak was a teenager when she was befriended by a former nun who taught at her Catholic school in Minnesota. The teacher eventually asked Susan to dinner, and Susan went along with the consent of her parents. I remember walking out and going to the parking lot and um, getting in the car and her saying to me, are we friends? Well, I said, yeah. And she said, can friends do anything with friends? And I said, well, I guess, I think so. And um, she laid down on top of me and kissed me. Subsequent to that, uh, drove me to her home. I said, my folks won't. I, I can't stay overnight. My folks won't let me stay overnight. And she said, I'll tell them it's okay. I was struck by Susan's story because it's a powerful evocation of how an abuser selects and cultivates a victim. And in this case, it's doubly confusing for her because her abuser was a teacher uh-huh. and a woman who uses the trust Susan's parents would have in a female to a female teacher to abuse her. Mm-hmm. So that's why she felt so trapped, because this was some a person of trust, a former nun, a teacher who had a relationship with her parents, someone she looked up to. So she felt like it must have somehow been her fault. She must have done something wrong. It couldn't possibly be this person doing something wrong, because this is a person of faith and a person who has a relationship with her parents. And so for the longest time... Susan assumed it was her fault. It was many, many, many years later that a a counselor kind of proposed to her the possibility that she might have been abused. That was not even like an idea in her mind. Yeah, she says, actually, when she thinks about, well, I must have done something wrong, she says, my brain was on fire. And she actually contemplated suicide that very first night. Yeah. But then said, Catholics can't kill themselves. Exactly. How did this psychological confusion in a young person like Susan help her abuse her? Well, because it, it keeps her not saying anything. It keeps her not telling anyone. She didn't tell her parents. She didn't tell authorities. And the story that kind of came out, because, of course, Susan is also kind of experiencing the repercussions of this. She's feeling crazy. She's feeling distanced from her family. She can't focus in school. She's having interrupted thoughts. But the kind of narrative that comes out is something's wrong with Susan. You know, Susan's going crazy. And so that that helps her abuser because it's it's not about abuse. It's it's about something being wrong with Susan. You structure this episode of Reckoning's uh, podcast in a really interesting way. The stories parallel each other. And then we hear how Gil evolves from a very busy parish priest to a perpetrator when he first fondled a 13-year-old boy. And the fact that he didn't seem to respond negatively said to me that he must be okay with it. I knew it was wrong to do that, that I was taking advantage this kid had served mass, it was pretty clear, you know, he liked me, looked up to me. And there was a certain sense of danger, too. Well, what if he reacts negatively? What if he tells one of the adults, oh, my God, then what? You know, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. You know, when I got home that night, 
it was like, oh my God, what have I done? This is awful. He's very honest about his constant urge to have sexual interactions with young boys. It, we, we don't usually hear from former perpetrators. Yeah. Why did you want to include Gil in this, and how did you decide? You know, this is very difficult stuff for people to hear, possibly, but he's so brutally honest about it. Yeah. He's so brutally honest. He also confessed, which is rare. I wanted to include him because I want to show what it might look like, what it can look like <laughs> for a priest who's committing clergy sex abuse to come forward, to confess, to face consequences. He went to jail to not just face consequences, but really embrace the consequences as, as part of what he needed in order to heal. And then to go on and, and work as an activist to address clergy sex abuse. So. I think his story is really important because it, well, it complicates things. <laughs> what, what can it look like? I mean, this might sound like a blasphemous question, but under what circumstances can an ex-perpetrator become an ally or an advocate? That's what I want to show here. I, you know, I guess we don't have to choose between, let's say, compassion and consequences, right? Gil can face the consequences that he deserves for the actions he committed. And, you know, if he wants to help and is able to help and he is like uniquely positioned to help because he can talk to priests, he can talk to all kinds of audiences in a unique way because he committed assault himself and confessed and faced the consequences. You know, we don't have to choose between, let's say, consequences and compassion or consequences and, you know, becoming an advocate or an ally. And I, and I want to show an example of what that might look like. I mean, I think also for priests, like who are, let's say in the dark, who have committed something and are hiding it or whatever, like, what does it actually look like for someone to face the consequences and then actually continue to have a life. Yeah, I think there's kind of like learning here for for everyone in a way, you know. That's so interesting. It's so far beyond what most of the situations that we know about, right? Because yeah. there's lawsuits, the lawyers are involved. And not that there's anything wrong with any of those processes, but it's so unusual that you can show something beyond that. We're both yeah, and, and, and my point is that we don't have to let go of the lawsuits. You know, it's like, let there be the consequences that there need to be. And for everyone's sake, under the right circumstances or for the right people, may they become part of the cause to the extent that they can be helpful. I didn't want it, and I was trying to get rid of it, and I was trying to push it down, which just kept feeding it. I felt awful that I was doing this, and yet it just felt like I can't stop. Clearly, Gil struggles with his compulsion. He says he felt awful he was doing this, but it was like he couldn't stop. He even engages in an act with this boy who's his primary victim at his home while uh -huh. the parents are in another room, and he, he tells us about the boy making those initial moves. So we see how this young man has been distorted by the abuse, his sense of what is a healthy sexual relationship has been altered by Gill's actions. And I thought it was interesting that you sort of pause and make it clear that in these kinds of situations, not fighting a sexual advance from another person or even enjoying it does not imply consent. Why was that such an important message to get across? Yeah, because, I mean, the, we have an age of consent 
you know, for a reason below a certain age or at a certain point in our, in our human development, we're not actually really capable of giving meaningful consent. Susan tries to run away. She even cuts her wrist as a way to try and escape the situation, but she never told anyone. She speaks very powerfully of the impact this had on her. I had no joy. I had no um, energy. I, I had difficulty sleeping. I had intrusive thoughts. I was, was having a hard time getting up and going to class. I couldn't make, I couldn't put it together. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. How long did the abuse go on? When she did really try to slit her wrists and when she was at her teacher's house and her teacher found her and bandaged her up, took her home in the morning, her parents then took her, basically checked her into a hospital where she was at for months. By the time she came back to high school, the teacher was gone, but... Her teacher continued to find her, actually, and continued abusing mm. her. And, and again, Susan didn't really understand that what was going on was abuse. And so it actually continued for another four years after high school. And then at a certain point, it, it, four years out of high school, Susan had been kind of going in and out of college, in and out of rehab. She got a phone call from the teacher asking to see her. And for whatever reason, Susan at that moment kind of like knew how to say no and just said no and hung up the phone. And that is when the abuse stopped. And it was after that point, and I don't remember exactly how long after that point, that she spoke with a counselor in rehab and it was her counselor who introduced her to the possibility that she had been abused. Really my jaw kind of hit my knees and I just looked at her. It was for a moment that somebody thought it was somebody else's fault. And I'd been thinking it was my fault. It was really a th oh, thunderish, kind of, in a good way. And it freed me to start dealing with what had happened to me and, and calling it by name. That's Susan Pavlak, a survivor of clergy sexual abuse who was featured on an episode of The Reckonings podcast produced by Stephanie Lepp. We're also hearing from her. On her podcast, Stephanie talked with both Susan and also a former priest and perpetrator named Gil Gustafson, who teamed up to help do something about stopping clergy sexual abuse. We'll have more on this episode of the podcast Reckonings when we continue right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with correspondent Megan Kamrick today. Before the break, we heard from Susan Pavlak, a victim of abuse, about her journey to forgiveness on an episode of the Reckonings podcast. Megan Kamrick picks up the other thread of this story about former perpetrator Gil Gustafson with Reckonings podcast producer Stephanie Lepp. In Gil's case, his primary victim actually tells church authorities and Gil says it's time to turn and face what I've done. I don't want to keep running away from this. It's time to turn and face what I have done, no matter what the consequences are. He also contemplates suicide, but he doesn't. He faces an identity crisis. He abused four boys. He was sentenced to prison and then probation when he came out. What I thought was interesting is he, as part of this rehabilitation, is he actually begins reading accounts of various victims Mm -hmm. to understand what impact he had. Yeah. And he actually, friends of his who had been abused by clergy, I mean, this is kind of wild to me, reached out to him to, to try to understand why someone would do something like that. So he was very much kind of like getting in touch with, even if it was not his own survivor's experience because he wasn't able to because of the you know terms of the probation he was not able to have contact with them he was very much kind of getting in touch with the experience of you know of clergy sex abuse survivors kind of more generally and susan also begins exploring the idea of restorative justice there has to be redemption after horror there has to be a way to repair Restorative justice is everywhere in uh, the Christian, well, in the Hebrew tradition as well. How does that help her heal? Yeah, so it's interesting that it helped her heal because it was actually kind of a failed attempt at restorative justice. She finally, when she kind of understood that it was sexual abuse, and this is much later in her life, she took her case to the vicar general who is kind of uh, the second in command of the bishop, and because her abuser had been a nun. And the person asked her if she wanted to meet with her abuser and that he would kind of facilitate you know, a, a meeting between them, somewhat of a, of a restorative justice, possibly a restorative justice encounter between them. And Susan said yes, and so the... Um, person in authority, you know, brought them together, and her abuser really never took responsibility. She said, I'm sorry that this happened to you, which then Susan says, which I thought was an odd way to put it because she wasn't taking any responsibility. She had no sorrow that I know of. And Susan, kind of understanding that forgiveness is about her and forgiveness is what she needed in order to be free forgave her abuser anyway and her abuser never even looked up and so that could be kind of construed as a failed attempt at restorative justice in the sense that there wasn't kind of you know the perpetrator did not work to repair the harm that she had done but for susan you know, she still used it as an opportunity to forgive and to free herself, which is really instructive. The ability to kind of take one's healing into one's own hands in that way is is really impressive. And not to say that everyone can do it, but it's really something to marvel at, <laughs> I would say. 
I would rather be free. I would rather not drag those chains behind me anymore. Forgiveness is about me, it's not about her. Forgiveness is about my, my choices. And I have forgiven and forgiven and forgiven that same person many times. Casting her out or anyone out of community is like taking away their opportunity to get better. And it's important to me that we all have the opportunity to get better. There's, there has to be a road back from even that kind of terrible behavior. There has to be light for them to come back toward. Or why come back? Why change? What happens to Gil after he serves his sentence? So Gil, after he serves his time, he goes into therapy. He starts really digging into accounts of victims of sexual abuse to learn about the kind of impact he had on his own victims. He starts kind of, you know, getting into the clergy sex abuse, let's call let's say, kind of advocacy space. He, kind of the big moment for him is he's invited to speak at a conference on clergy sex abuse, and he turns out he's speaking right after a victim. And so, you know, Gil is thinking, oh, man, <laughs> now I'm going to get up now, and I'm the like the, the person who did these kinds of things. But, you know, he gets up, and his basic message is the consequences were painful, but every single one of them had a gift. I misused my position of power to get my needs met. And I must accept responsibility. And once we do that, once we accept our own personal responsibility, you can say, okay, now I've got to change. Holding people responsible and giving them to understand what it is that got them there, where the way they are, that's the place of change. Don't spare your offenders their consequences. Don't spare the consequences. You're doing your offender no favors. The consequences can be the path to heal and become whole. After he spoke, the, the victim who spoke before him actually asked if they could hug, and they they ended up you know having a hug that was very healing for for both of them. But um, that really kind of set Gil on a path of that ended up connecting him with Susan, but of really kind of getting into this space and and ultimately into restorative justice for clergy sex abuse. They let him back in ministry for a while. He couldn't have contact with minors, but he was with this interesting community of nuns mm -hmm. who knew his whole story and accepted him as the flawed person he was. And I thought that was an interesting part of the story just to, for people who are not part of a religious tradition, you know, you've, we've heard a story of a nun who terribly abused a minor. And then you have this community of nuns he goes back to, or they understand him totally who he is and accept him. <laughs> it was kind of beautiful. Yes. And he actually says it made him a better priest. It's this amazing thing where so many people will say, you know, and I agree with this, that part of the reason there is clergy sex abuse in the first place is because clergy have so much power and because they are put on this pedestal. And he says, and it's it's really kind of amazing that when he was taken off the pedestal, when he was preaching as a broken person, it actually made him a better preacher. It kind of like clarified his 
I don't know how he would put it, his connection to the divine or however he would put it, but it, it speak, you know, being his authentic broken self and not kind of this, you know, on a pedestal priest actually made him a better preacher, which is kind of a, an amazing and hopeful thing. Stephanie Lepp, uh, Gill was in recovery for 20 years um, doing this kind of ministry, and the Dallas Charter came out. What did that mean for him? Yeah, so the Dallas Charter is a set of rules for dealing with priests who have committed sex abuse, and it included a policy of zero tolerance, which meant that any priest who's been credibly accused must be removed from ministry. And so by the time the Dallas Charter came out, you know, like you said, Gil had been in recovery for 20 years, but he had been ministering to this community of nuns. And because of the zero, you know, zero tolerance policy, he had to be removed from ministry. He says, you know, that is actually the most painful consequence he has faced more painful than jail more more painful than you know social ostracization more painful than everything was this Dallas charter coming out with the zero tolerance policy that meant that even though this was very much in the past he was very deep in recovery and was actually you know working to alleviate clergy sex abuse it, it, he could no longer minister I have to say, as a very jaded Catholic who's been furious for years with my (laughs) church (laughs) over the handling of abuse and other things, I was, in spite of myself, moved by Gil's story and his long journey to find some kind of redemption and his continued willingness to accept the consequences (laughs) of what he did. I mean, in a way, it's like he's just, and same with Susan, just following the gospel. I mean, if you actually practice what you preach, you know, if you're actually taking seriously, you know, the lessons that are in the gospel and really, you know, grace, forgiveness, redemption, compassion, all these things, you know, they can guide. I mean, this may sound overly naive, not idealistic, but you know, they can guide the church through this crisis. And certainly they have guided Gil and Susan in their response, you know, respectively to the abuse they committed or the the abuse they experienced. You end this episode of the Reckonings podcast with stories of how Susan and Gil have come together with their own stories to work on restorative justice, but they face challenges doing this in a more widespread way because Gil was a perpetrator. Susan and Gill have come together to create Uncommon Conversation, which is basically a, a facilitated process to bring, instead of restorative justice to, to individual, you know, an individual perpetrator and survivor, re- bringing restorative justice to groups in the church. So, you know, could, because people in the pulpit also need healing, you know, everyone is going through this um, together. So they've kind of developed this format that they can do with parishes or groups of people who are trying to kind of work through, um, you know, sexual abuse, clergy sex abuse in their community. And so, again, there's kind of no shortage of of opportunities for them to kind of offer this service. But yeah, it's been it's been hard for them because of the understandable stigma Uh, with perpetrators. And even though Susan is working side by side with him, some then see her, you know, negatively because she's willing to collaborate with him. But um, that's the nature of the work is, you know, coming together and perpetrators really confronting and seeing clearly what they have done and then really trying to trying to move forward 
together in a way that achieves healing and justice. Some groups have overcome their discomfort with having a perpetrator and a victim talking together about this, and they're they're getting more invitations or opportunities. Yeah, they've worked with various groups using it. And I think also just generally restorative justice as an approach is growing. I don't know if you followed the Redemption Project on CNN. The Redemption Project is a television show that Van Jones started on CNN that is basically just restorative justice dialogues live. Like you actually Mm. get to watch the robber, whoever it is, you know, the person who ro- who, who committed the, ro- the, the robbery, the armed robbery, and the person who was robbed come together and work things out and talk things out at, live on television. It's, a, it's amazing. <laughs> so that, you know, along with whatever else we have to endure on TV, we can also witness, you know, healing in action. Thank you, Van Jones. Uh, but just generally, I think restorative justice is becoming, you know, better known, there's still a lot of kind of, you know, like, does it let perpetrators off the hook too easy? You know, we've had kind of all these questions, I guess, culturally and legally. But I think the more awareness of it as a practice grows, that's part of kind of paving the way for the kind of work that Susan and Gill are doing. Where do you see hope in their stories, in Susan and Gill's stories that they told to Reckonings? Where do you see hope for solutions to the clergy abuse crisis? Yeah, well, in, I guess in Gil's story, I see hope in his capacity to not just face his consequences, but really embrace them and learn from them and grow from them. I mean, his it's such a great example for, again, other offenders, ex-offenders kind of in hiding who are scared to see it's it's actually possible to face your consequences and grow from them. And that might even be a desirable thing for someone who cares about uh, grace, forgiveness, redemption, all the, you know, the values of the faith. So the capacity to not just face, but embrace consequences. And then with Susan, the capacity to forgive and find healing, you know, without even, you know, legal involvement or without even the perpetrator (laughs) being, you know, doing any confronting. I definitely don't mean to negate the importance of, you know, legal action or perpetrators confronting what they've done, but she decided forgiveness was about her and she gets the agency and she has used her agency, you know, to, to achieve her own healing. And then for both of them, the, the capacity to collaborate with each other and bring, restorative justice to the church and just generally the capacity to create openness and creativity and a capacity for healing in a space that just feels often so narrow and so broken and so hopeless. They're like a source of light. It's like it's actually possible to work through this in a way that achieves healing and justice for everyone and to really, you know, live the gospel in the way that we address clergy sex abuse. Why did this story, in particular the story of a victim and a perpetrator, fit into what you're trying to do with the Reckonings podcast? Oh, yeah. So Reckonings is an exploration of how we change, how we change our political worldviews, how we transcend extremism, how we make all kinds of transformative change. And so the reason this fits, you know, it's it, it was really just looking for what does change look like within the Me Too or sex abuse context. And to me, it looks like 
a survivor who was able to heal, right? And that's that's that change. And then a perpetrator who was able to take a look in the mirror and grow. <laughs> and so, you know, what does that kind of change look like? What does transformation on sex abuse look like? That was Stephanie Lepp, producer of The Reckonings Podcast, and you can find a link to the full episode with Susan and Gill at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our websites and resources section on the September 2020 episode page. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts. You can sign up for our podcast or our newsletter, order CDs, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future. Our nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, is separate and apart from your local public media outlet that broadcasts the program, so help if you can at peacetalksradio.com. The website is a real resource for anyone interested in peace studies. Here are some clips from other 2020 episodes you'll find there, spotlighting the peace work of Jimmy Carter. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers, clear leadership, not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. He negotiated the SALT Treaty, Panama Canal Treaty, uh, Human Rights, the Middle East Treaty. All of these were great peacemaking efforts. He was a peacemaker. Also tips on making peace with people we just plain disagree with. I'm feeling hopeless around um, how much I want respect for the things that I believe in and the people that I care about. And I would so love us to find a way to talk about our differences that isn't about putting down other people. That's really about what really matters to us rather than um, judgments about people or these surface things. Are you willing to reframe this conversation and let me know what this person is doing that isn't working for you, rather than just tearing down the person? We have some inspiring stories about the career of John Lewis. How long can people suffer? How long can people starve? And when we make a decision between children, the poor, the elderly, and military might, you cannot be patient. You cannot wait and how police are being trained in de-escalation. He started crying, he was like, all I have to do is be a human being, right? <laughs> yeah, that's all. Think about your dad being this person. We all pejoratize, we all look at somebody the way they dress, the way they look, and you know what? Treat this guy like he's your dad, your daughter, your son, whatever this is, you know, whatever's going on, it, it will help you. The full programs on all of these can be found by clicking on Peace Talks episodes on our front page and then click on the 2020 season at peacetalksradio.com. Support to make all this possible comes from listeners like you. Also, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.